Okay, with that, we're in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read 30 verses here. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, the freedom that we have to gather here to worship you, to study your word, um, to gather with one another without fear of any sort of assault from the authorities that are over us. Uh, We thank you, Lord. We recognize that we live in a very special and sheltered place compared to our brothers and sisters over the centuries. And so, Lord, we don't take this freedom lightly. Lord, as we open up your word, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning to us in context. Lord, as we look back some 2,000 years to Jesus talking to his disciples, Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand historically what happened, historically what was said, that we would be able to then draw principles that transcend time and culture and place uh, so that we would hear your voice, um, that we would walk away from this place uh, knowing you better, um, that we would be convicted in our hearts, that we would uh, adjust our life, Lord, that we would honor you with them. We thank you for this life that we have, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gave five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two Talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the masters of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and bought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said, You wicked, lazy slave. 
You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has more, who has more will be given or shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide us now as we study, as we worship you with our minds, uh, pondering the things that are found uh, in this section. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, as a reminder, we find ourselves in the midst of the, the Olivet Discourse. The, the reason it's referred to um, as the Olivet Discourse is simply because the, the sermon takes place on the Mount of Olives. Um, the sermon begins with a question of the disciples to Jesus found in verse 3 of chapter 24. And there we'll remember that he, uh, the disciples had been uh, in the Temple Mount, which is behind me, um, huge, huge area, massive. Uh, Jesus had been there since Sunday. It's now probably Tuesday. Sunday was the triumphal entry where he, he made his entry on the donkey. Uh, we believe that it's Tuesday because when we get to chapter 26, it says, he says in two days, the Passover is about to begin. It was a high holiday, which meant that it started on Thursday. And, and so they leave the temple. Jesus had been really firm and harsh with the leaders of the temple. They, they enter the temple, probably down the southern steps over here. Jesus says that this temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, the, the temple was something that they worshipped, that they, they, uh, they, they could swear, like we, take, like, not we, like, well, we shouldn't, I mean, you shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And, and sometimes people make, they, you know, they, they make an allegiance on the Bible, um, they, could, they would swear and make their oaths by the temple. Like the temple was a big, big deal. And so when Jesus said, this whole temple is going to be destroyed, and, and he walks down the steps, they go down to Kedron Valley. It's a valley here. And then you go up to the hill. This is a bunch of graves, modern-day Israel. Then you, they would have made their way up on the Mount of Olives where it's a grove of olive trees. And they sat down looking at the temple, beautiful scene. Still to this day, it's, it's, it's breathtaking when you see it for your first time. And in verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus a question. They said to him, tell us, when will these things happen and what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they had their minds on end time. Their minds were focused on the coming of, of the Messiah. Uh, they had seen great prophetical things in the scriptures, like in Daniel, Isaiah, of the Messiah that would come to reign and to rule, to, to, to be a, a leader unlike any leader that the earth has ever seen. They were, they were longing for this. Um, they didn't see, they skimmed over Isaiah 53 in this picture of the suffering servant. They, 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 they just couldn't conceptualize that Jesus was going to the cross. And so they were longing for this picture that a few weeks ago we read from, from Zechariah 14 where where we're told that the Messiah is going to place his feet on the Mount of Olives, that the earth will split and the path will be created into the east side of, of the, the temple. Uh, they're thinking, is this the time? And so Jesus is answering this question for all of chapter 24, all of chapter 25. Um, in the last few weeks, I've covered some, some fairly technical, I really... If you're a person that really studies end times, you're saying, oh, I wasn't very technical, but for a lot of us, it was really technical. Um, I've addressed those things. Um, I, I acknowledge that this teaching, I believe, is dealing with the 70th week that Daniel refers about. I, I believe that the things in this sermon deal with post-rapture entering into the 70th week, which is referred to as a tribulation that Jesus refers to in chapter 24. I believe all of this is the context for those future listeners awaiting the second advent of Christ. I've covered that. 
For the rest of this sermon, my, my aim is to stop with the technical stuff. So if you want to come mumble, amen, like we're glad we're through that. Um, the reason I'm not going to sort of focus on the, the charts and explaining how, like, how I believe, you know, in a chronological order, how it seems that things will pan out, the, the reason I'm going to move from that is because if we are living during the 70th week, awaiting the second advent, the second coming of Christ, the application is the same as those of us who are living in the church age awaiting our coming to see him face to faith, whether it's face to face, not faith to faith. Uh, um, whether it's that you die, the rapture of the church happens, or we got it all wrong and he comes for the second time. All, none of that None of that really matters. I mean, it does. I mean, I'm not. I'm arguing with myself up here. It matters, but from a practical standpoint, our day-to-day lives, whether it's now or it's then, it's the same. The bottom line is, each each one of us, at one point in our lives, we're going to stand before Christ. Whether it comes through your death, whether it comes through the rapture of the church whether it comes through the second coming. And in light of either one of those options, how you live today matters. I read a quote this week. I should have written down who it was. So somebody out there in the world said this, and it was really good. I should have given them credit. And the quote is, when Christ returns, he will not ask if one had the date right, but will ask, what have you been doing? And so this is the point. These, these parables that Jesus is entering into, he's dealing with, okay, you want to know when this is all going to happen? When are these events going to happen? He sort of gives a, an, an outline, but there's a lot of mystery there. But then he leads into how should your life look leading up to these things? Uh, back in the last chapter, chapter 24, verse 20, 42, he says, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He then tells parable number one. Parable number one, there were a couple slaves. They, uh, the, the slave owner had gone away. They were supposed to, I kind of I get that they were doing KP duty. They were responsible for cooking the meals, making sure that everything was in order. Uh, this, the owner goes away. The first slave, he doesn't care that the slave's away. He's, he's continuing with his preparation, preparing the meals. Um, the slave owner comes back. He's like, man, great job. Thanks. I was away, but you're just... You're marching along just like I was here. Now, the second guy was anticipating that the slave owner would come back like later. So he starts boozing it up, living his life, having a great time. Hey, he's gone for a long time. It doesn't matter that all of a sudden slave owner comes back. Uh Uh-oh, I thought you'd come back next Tuesday. (laughs) And it's like, you're here. And so Jesus started making the point, be ready because you don't know at any moment the Lord could return. And so then he transitions to parable number two, which is today. Parable number two talks about this this wedding celebration. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to, to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we could get sort of lost. Um, a lot of people will say right away that weddings today we don't do stuff like this. It's not a big celebration. But I, I tell you, um, you know, this Thursday's anonized is our 15-year anniversary. It's a really exciting time. Every time that we sort of approach our wedding anniversary, I, I find myself like it starts kind of in October. And Anna normally looks at me and is like, she's like, do you know what, do you know what today is? Uh, it's October. It's October 9th. It's October 9th. Hey, today I proposed to you. <laughs> she's like, you got it. Or I, normally if your wife starts asking, do you know the date? You got to like, uh, don't give up that you don't remember right away. Just get, let, let the brain kind of go through the files and tabs. And then since Thursday's our anniversary where it's kind of like, oh, you, you remember when we had like our families together for that whole like meal beforehand in life? Like normally my family was sort of obnoxious and did stuff. And, and we sort of like, oh, that was funny. And then it's like, oh, like the day before you're really like, I remember being so excited and. Then the next day, like going through the whole thing and going, wow, now I'm married. Now I have this thing on my finger and it's just like weird. Like I got to wear jewelry now. And, and so, you know, there's a process. But it's important for us to understand how weddings worked 2,000 years ago in Israel 
because this is the picture that Jesus is describing. So there were three parts. Um, the first part really happened, I don't want to say birth, but, but very early in age, like within the first year or two, there'd be a two families. I just, hey, I just had a baby girl. Hey, they just had a baby boy. That's a really good family. That's a really good family. Hey, uh, how about when the time is right, we'll, let's, let's, let's arrange this marriage so these two people, they get married. Um, as a father of now two girls that are growing up, this seems like a really good idea to me. <laughs> like, where when it was time for me to get married, I didn't think this was like the greatest way to do it, but now as a dad, I'm seeing some wisdom here. I think it changed. Um, I think some things change when a culture views marriage this way. I mean, if you saw Fiddler on the Roof, you know, like you'll grow, you know, do you love me, that song? Like, uh, I'm not going to sing it now. <laughs> Although I do have more time in this service and I've been drinking <laughs> a lot of coffee and I, um, but it's like they grow into love. But, but the marriage, the, the first part of marriage was commitment, not feelings. Uh, coming to this church 10 years ago, I began to know and to be introduced and, and, and really fall in love with people, many of them who are with the Lord now, who have been married, you know, 60, 70, Pete and Dolores, how many, you guys, how many years have you been married now? Are we in the 80 years of marriage? Like, what, how many years is it now? 72 years of marriage. I mean, that's something to, they always win the newlywed game, like, it's like, it's like when we start getting prizes for who's been married the longest, it's like, well, what do we want to get for Pete and Dolores? Kind of thing. But 72 years. And so being, being around couples, the, the one thing that I've learned from people that have been married for like over 50 years is like you learn that the key to marriage is being committed in marriage, period. Like all the, all the other, it's, you're committed. And in this culture, it was committed. Okay, this was not in my notes, but this is point number one, that these you young people are sort of, Set in motion to be married. A deal is struck by the fathers of the bride and the groom. Then around 12, 13, 14, 15, teenage-ish years, it's time to sort of uh, be betrothed where a ceremony is done. Um, sifting through the files of my brain, how to... But basically, once the betrothal, their engagement to... To, to get out of that required a divorce. And so if you read the pages of the Bible or you are studying antiquities, you know, because I know you guys are probably studying antiquities, sort of like what's going on in ancient Israel during this time, you'll, you'll stumble across a term, a widowed virgin. Now, a widowed virgin is a girl who was betrothed to be married and her husband died. So they never consummated the relationship, but she was married. And so that would happen at 1213. Now, a specific time frame wasn't set up during this process, but it was about a year for the third step to happen. Now, the third step, uh, in between the second step and the third step, the husband or the future husband, the groom-to-be, he would prepare a place for his family to live. He would get his affairs in order. He would, um, if he didn't have his own land, most the, traditionally what would happen is they, they would there would be the family house, and they would basically build an addition to the house. And, and somewhere at a year, the groom would come for the bride, and then the ceremony would last a, 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 it's like a week celebration. And it was the whole community. It was everybody coming together. But when the, but when the groom came with the bride sort of kicking off the events, there would be attendance like in our wedding. This is sort of the picture that we have these 10... It says 10 virgins, but think of 10 bridesmaids. They're unmarried women. When we, I know that you don't have to be unmarried to be a bridesmaid, but this is the context then. As they entered into the town to begin the festivities, the bridesmaids or the, the, the virgins here, they would sort of add on to the wedding party and they would zigzag through the town. And as they zigzag through the town, everybody's screaming, Mazel tov. No, congratulations. This is great. Here's your rice maker. Here's your bread maker. Here's your toaster. Like they're given all of the wedding gifts as they're going through the town. And so they would go the very longest route <laughs> to make sure they hit everybody up. They would then make it to the party. 
they would enter in, they would have a festivity. And at some point during the ceremony, the best man, they probably had a different name for it, he would walk up and he would place the, the groom's hand into the bride's hand. And he would look at everybody and he'd say, it's time for y'all to go home. And the groom would be like, amen. And everybody would leave. And then they were married and the, the wedding, the marriage was consummated. So this is the picture. They're waiting. They knew the time was there. And, and one, the, the Latin Vulgate and, and the Syriac version, there's, the, the idea is in this text that the groom came with the bridesmaid, or the bride, excuse me, the groom came with the bride. Like they made their entry into town. I don't know. The text says here is just the groom. But they're waiting. They have their torches. They're supposed to light their torches and get ready. Now, the interesting thing in this, in this story before we advance Contrasted with the previous story of those two slaves, the two slaves, the owner came back sooner than they anticipated. In this story, there was a delay. And it was much longer than they had anticipated for the return. And so of these ten bridesmaids, or, you know, virgins, we read in verse 2, five of them were foolish. The Greek word is essentially moron. They were morons. This is where the Greek, our word moron comes from this. You can define moron however you please, but they were foolish. And then there were five that were prudent. It's interesting that this is like half and half. It wasn't like, oh, there was one foolish person. It was like half of them were foolish. For when the foolish took their lamps, think of torches. Think tiki torches. If you're, th- if you're getting ready for summer already, we had our rain. Let's move on. We had winter. It was really great. Uh, it was brutal. We had... We had eight days of rain instead of three days of rain this winter. Hopefully we're done, and hopefully we can, you know, we're out of the drought. We can move on. And a true San Diegan right here. And, okay, I'm thinking about summer, and I got distracted. We're talking about tiki torches. So, so don't think like, like lantern, like, like a Coleman flashlight sort of lantern. Think a tiki torch. There's a little wick. There's, you pour the citronella oil in there. And you basically, I don't know if they didn't have Bic lighters back then, but they'd light it somehow, and that would be their light, and when it ran out, they'd have to add more oil. And so they're, they're, they're getting their torches ready. Um, so verse 3, the foolish took their lamps, the torch, they took no oil with them. So they basically just to- took their torches out of the closet or wherever they kept them. They didn't really check the oil level. Then the prudent ones took the tiki torches out, also grabbed a flask of oil. Trying to come up with a modern-day illustration is all of the weeds are coming that looks like beautiful green grass. I start thinking about weed whacking, and my my illustration breaks down, but just bear with me. It would be like if we were having a weed whacking party at the church. Bring your weed whackers, bring everything, and you just go grab your weed whacker without checking the gas. You don't bring a little gas tank. You show up here, and you pull it a couple times, and it's like, whew, I'm out of gas. See, this is where the illustration breaks down because everybody's like, I got gas. Don't, you're not. <laughs> uh, it's pre-mixed everything. Go to town. This is sort of the, the picture. And so now they go, half of them aren't prepared. The other half are very prepared. But the bridegroom, he's delaying. He's taking too much time, verse 5. And we read that they all got drowsy and began to sleep. We're told in the very next verse that, it's, uh, that he came at midnight. This would be an unusual time. Um, I don't, anybody here work graveyards or used to work graveyards? I hate working the graveyard. Like, I remember when I was a SEAL instructor, and we'd, I'd sign up for the Hell Week shift, and I'd work the midnight crew, and I would fall. Like, these guys would be doing dangerous stuff. I'd be in the car like, oh, man, I'm sound asleep. I'd wake up. Did anything happen? Anybody die? Everybody's here. Okay, let's get going hard to, there's something about midnight to 4 a.m. that try, it gets so cold and you get so tired your eyelids feel like they're about 100 pounds and so all of them are drowsy and in the midst of their sleepiness or they begin they're totally asleep but around midnight there was a shout behold the bridegroom come out to meet him and i i imagine them all jumping up awake where am i what what day is it why are we here what's happening uh, when I came out of my surgery last month, I, I, I was going into surgery nervous. I'd heard about everybody. Um, 
There's my surgery buddy. This is like, she's my first. I mean, she, uh, she, 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 she was coming out of surgery as I was going into surgery, and it was my first pastoral visit ever. And I'm like, well, I got to go get cut on. I'll see you later. <laughs> All the nurses are laughing. And so we, so I got her experience. I've been told like, hey, you go. And then you just like, you're asleep and you don't remember anything. And so I'm in there like on the electrocution table, like where I feel like I'm going to the deathbed. And I'm looking around. I'm like, I want to remember every last moment. I'm gonna, they're not going to be able to get me to sleep. I'm going to force myself awake. And then the next thing I know, I hear this voice saying, it's okay. You're coming out of surgery. And, and immediately, a police dispatcher had told me that her aunt worked in the recovery room. And so I'm coming out of it. I'm like, give me Carol. I need to talk to Carol. And the lady's like, yeah, there's a Carol here. And she goes against Carol. And I'm like, is your niece working at the Escondido Police Department dispatch? She's like, no, no, no. I'm like, there's got to be another Carol. Get the other Carol. Like, I'm barking orders. (laughs) And so they're like, we'll go get the other Carol. And so then as they're going to get the other Carol, like, I start coming to my senses. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm a pastor and a chaplain. I only come to the hospital to work. And I, like, can I just have some saltines now? <laughs> like, kind of like, you don't have to get Carol. And so I, I, like, in the midst of this disorientation waking up, the unprepared women are like, our, our lamps have gone dry. I don't have any oil. They're now freaking out, asking, give me some of your oil. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. And then the, the prudent, now it says one thing. No, there will not be enough for us and for you to go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. What I hear is one of my favorite lines. When, when somebody is not prepared and they're now panicking and then they're coming to you and you're not panicked because you did what you were supposed to do, what I hear them saying is, your lack of preparation doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. And they're like, you were prepared, we were prepared. If we share our oil with you, then we don't have our lamps. So you go ahead and you get prepared. And so they go away and there's, you know, it's midnight. There wasn't a 7-Eleven, but they knew who the guy was who sold the oils. And so they knew it was a big party and and salesmen want to sell stuff. If you want to buy something at 2 in the morning, they'll sell it to you at 2 in the morning. It's reality. I mean, that's the, and so they go away. And so now why they, while they go away, verse 10, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins came. Let us in. Let us in. He said, no, you're wedding crashers. We don't know who you are. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Go away. And now in verse 13, remember, this is just a parable. Jesus then steps back and he says, this is the purpose of the parable. He says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. In my Bible, I can slip across to the other page. I don't know where chapter 24, verse 42 is for you. But if you were to slip over there before the beginning of the last parable, Jesus says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, verse 42. One parable is told, the second parable is told, then he says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. He says, be ready, be prepared. In one example, he says, the Lord might come back really fast. Be ready. The other parable, he says, be ready, but he might take a while. He might take a couple thousand years. Be ready. And so there's this tension. This, this whole parable, I think that Jesus is trying to make us, or them, uh, there's, to make us feel uncomfortable. The, the Word of God should make us, at times, feel uncomfortable because it's, the beauty is there's assurance of salvation, which I totally believe in. But, but when you're walking in the flesh, you don't have a whole lot of assurance there. There's, there's concern. So you could be saved, but walking in the flesh, and you don't feel so good with your relationship with God. You're not sure if you're saved. Only God knows. God, God knows how to sift through this stuff. This stuff, your salvation. He's the one who paid for you. He knows what you, like, he knows who his are. 
If they're walking away disobediently, I don't think you lose your salvation. However, this parable, also this one in particular, there are many who look like they're a part of the wedding party. They're close to the kingdom of God. They go to church every Sunday. They teach Sunday school. They do this and they do that. But in that hour, they actually didn't know him. My early days of coming to Christ, I really don't know when exactly I came to Christ. But from about 1995 to 2000, I have a five-year window where I know I came to Christ. And I believe that I had crossed the line and I believe that I was saved. But I continued to live in the world. And I remember being such in a tug of war, so uncertain about where I stood with God, fearful of I died. And it was a very, I was in the active duty Navy SEAL deploying to the Middle East. So like there was legitimate concerns. It wasn't like some random, like you might die. Like jumping out of a plane. Lord, am I good with you? Like I'll just, I think I'm good, but I'm not sure. And, and when I was walking in the flesh, it's a beautiful thing not to have assurance of your salvation when you're walking in the flesh because it forces you to consider and evaluate what are you trusting in. And I think Jesus is trying to whittle away what are you, what are you placing your faith in? Are you saved? And then the question is, can we know that we're saved? And my answer to you is absolutely, 100%, you can know. I'm not going to turn to the passages, but John 3.36, John 3.16, they're even at the Raiders games. And maybe some of you are being auditioning the Raiders for your future team. Now that the Chargers are gone, I don't know. I don't like the Raiders. I never will like the Raiders. And, but that has nothing to do with Sunday church right now, but we'll move on. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? We know that when you go all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 36, and it essentially says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. That same author, John, at the end of his life, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, he writes the whole first letter of John, his whole purpose. He tells us, why did he write this book? He says, and, this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. If you have trusted in Christ and you've become a child of God, you've received eternal life. If you could lose it, that's not really eternal. That's a, that's a temporary issuing of life. We're told if you believe eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. And this is the testimony. This is, this is that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And he who has the son has a life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. The things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that the purpose of the whole letter of 1 John, so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know without a doubt that you're saved, that you're, you're prepared. Whether you're sleeping, whether you're doing, like waking up, weed whacking, whatever you're doing, if he's to return or you're to drop down dead, your salvation is secure based on one thing. That's have you placed your faith in Christ. Belief. Period. But anticipating our death, which Solomon tells us in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of death. It's better to be in a funeral, a graveyard, because you're faced with the reality of your future. And when you're faced with that reality of your impending death, whether it's 50 years from now or today. I, I'm not planning on dying today, but I don't know what the, the day holds. You know, we'll see. Hopefully I don't die today, but we'll see. Yeah, but it's a joke. It's okay to laugh. It's okay. We're, we never plan on it. But my hope is on Christ, his work on the cross, not on my own works. Not, I, I'm thankful that it, I know I'm not worthy. And I have all kinds of sins in my past, like, like big sins, little sins. The Bible makes it very clear, like, I am, I am sinful, and so are you. Amen? I can say that about you guys. We all are. Like, I'm a saved sinner. Before I knew Christ, I was an unsaved sinner. Now I am a saved sinner. God's doing a work in me. I'm changing. Now I anticipate that day when I'm going to stand before him, and I know that I'm going to give an account. And so while salvation is a totally free gift, the economy in heaven is different. 
all through the New Testament, we see that how we live our life, there will be rewards based on our actions in this life, not salvation. And so the writers of the Bible make it very clear, in light of that day when you stand before your maker, how you live your life today will mean something then. And Jesus then is going to transition the story to the next parable. For it is just like a man, verse 14, who is about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. So here's the story. This is a very, this is a very, very rich man. Super, super, super duper, extremely, extremely wealthy. Um, he's going on not just a journey like two weeks to, he, like he's, I'm going to go down to Baja for a couple weeks. I'll be back in a couple weeks. This is like in the old days because it was the old days. I live in the United States or wherever this was and I'm going to go on a journey to Europe. I'm going to take a boat. I might be back in a year. I might be back in three years. I might, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But while I'm away, I want to give you some of my estate to manage while I'm gone. So the one guy, he says, here's five talents. To the next guy, he says, here's two talents. To the third slave, he says, here's one talent. Now, it's interesting. The thing that stands out to me is he says that he gave each according to his own ability. We are not, I mean, we are all equal in the sight of God, but we've all been gifted and created differently. We, ha- we each have different gifts, different talents, different uh, abilities. It's a beautiful thing. Like, I am thankful that we are we are all different. I'm thankful for the gifts and talents that God has given other people and, you know, for other people. I'm talking to some, where Todd, who I'll remember, like they're talking nuts and bolts and wrenches and I'm like, that is so not my thing. Dave, we picked up, he had a little car incident the other day. I was able to give him a ride and we're both talking. He's like, well, I'm not a monkey wrench. He's like, I'm not a monkey wrench. Like, yeah, this would scare me. Like, we're both like, like, what are they going to tell me? Because I have not, like, I mean, I could tell you where the oil thing is, but like, don't ask me to like, just do whatever else is included with change, you know, other stuff in the car. Like, but I'm grateful that there are people who love like getting greasy and doing stuff. I love that there are people who have different talents in my own because together it's the body of, it's beautiful. And so right away, it, we're, we're not created with the same. You're, you're not expected to, to live up to the things that God has given me gift-wise, nor am I expected to, to, to fulfill my life according to God's plan and the gifting that he's given to you. We each have been given gifts and talents. I'm responsible for the gifts and talents that God has given me to honor him with my life. You're expected to do the same with your life. We're not to compare ourselves with one another. Now, you might be wondering, what's a talent? Now, that's, a, that's a very complicated question because a talent is actually a measure of weight. And there's a bunch of different speculation. Everybody agrees that it's a ton of money. Um, the Baker commentary suggests that one talent is the equivalent of 19 years of wages for a day labor. So if we say that a day labor today makes $10 an hour, you do the math, 40-hour work week over the course of a year, times that by 52, or no, you times one week by 52 years, and you take it out to 19 years, that equates to $400,000 before taxes. Like, this is just straight up $400,000, one talent, possibly. So that makes two talents, $800,000, five talents, get my fingers right, $2 million. So this is a huge portion of money. And so the guy goes away. Immediately the one who had the five talents, he went and he traded with them. He gained five more talents. Uh, we don't know how long this time is, but we know that in verse 19, it says that he was gone for a long time. So I, c- clearly the guy that had five, this guy was, he was a mover and a shaker. He knew how to parlay that money. Like, here's no, again, five, two million dollars, no problem. I'll double it, no problem. We don't know what he did, but he started trading. The NASDAQ didn't exist, and I have no idea what he was doing, but he was trading, he was doing stuff. Likewise, the, the second guy who had two talents, we're told that he gained two men. In, this, in the like manner, he basically doubled his money. And then there's the last guy, the one talent. But he who received the one talent, verse 18, he went away and dug a hole in the ground. Oh, man, this is a lot of money. I'm like, don't want to get in trouble. This, 
he goes on to say he knows what kind of guy this is, so I'm just going to dig a really deep hole. I'm going to cover it, put some leaves over it so it looks natural, and I'm not going to forget where this is because I don't want to get in trouble. And so we're told in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See how I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you've entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him in the same way, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I'm reminded of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul is about to die. He's writing a letter to his young protege, Timothy. He's in prison. He knows that this isn't like the other imprisonments. He's in a, he, he, they dug a hole in the ground. He was, he was going to his death, whether days or weeks away, he didn't know. And he says in these verses that I am, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering you would pour on a hot fire and everything was consumed. There was nothing left. He says, I've given it my all. I've run my race. And I'm looking forward to standing before my Lord where my reward will be given to me. That he will stand and he will hear these same words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Beautiful picture. Then we're told of the last guy. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Now, right away, the guy acknowledges, he, the master is going to agree with him that you have identified me correctly. This guy's a shrewd guy with money. Uh, this week, I, I read... Well, I read a story about a commercial many years ago, and the commercial goes that this guy, he needed to take out a $5,000 loan for a trip to Europe. So he pulls into the bank with his Rolls Royce. He walks into the bank, and he says, I need to make a loan for $5,000. And the bank teller says, oh, that's a lot of money. Um, do you have anything that you can secure the loan with? The guy says, yeah, I have a Rolls Royce. Here's the keys. Can we take the Rolls Royce keys? The guy says, absolutely. Let me sign the paperwork. He signs the paperwork. And guy goes to Europe, he comes back with $5,000 cash, he says, here's your money back. Bank teller says, let me do the math, okay, you owe an, an additional $15.20 for interest. And he's like, but sir, I, and the guy goes, here's your money. And, and he's like, sir, but can I, can I ask you a question? I am, um, well, I didn't say he Googled him, but he looked him up, and he's like, I see that you're like a multimillionaire. Why would you need a $5,000 loan? He's like, you tell me a place in New York City where I can park my Rolls Royce totally in secured parking for 15 bucks. And the guy says, have a great day. And he goes home. Now that's a shrewd businessman. And, and this guy with the one talent, he's so fearful that he's going to get into trouble that he seizes to do what, he's, like, what he wants to do. I think he would have been better off. He said, hey, man, I tried to like, I bought a used car and I tried to sell it. But, you know, of your $200,000, I only have... $800,000 or whatever, what was it? We said $400,000. I, I lost half of it. I'm really sorry. The guy said, you get the impression from the guy. He's like, well, at least you tried. At least you tried. And so this guy, he answers, verse 26, his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and you gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Let me try to get caught up to my notes here. The question here is, what's going on? What's Jesus talking about? Like, Jesus isn't saying that God is like this, this wicked guy who, who schemes and deals and takes advantage of people and reaps where he doesn't sow. I think, I think the message that Jesus is trying to convey is, if you know the Father, you know what he desires, then you have an obligation as one of his children to sort of honor him with your life. Because he's going to ask, what did you do with what you were given? I don't know about you guys, but when I get a gift card, 
I spend it right away. My wife has the ability to like file a gift card away for like seven years and then to remember she has it. She's like, oh, I got a McDonald's gift card. Let's go use that. I'm like, where did that come from? Like I, I get him and I said, honey, we're going to wherever. Where is this? I don't know. I got a gift card. We got to use it because if I don't use it, what happens? You lose it. And then if you get a gift card and it's for like $50, I make sure that I spend like $80 because I don't want change left on it. I want to get every, I want to milk it for every last... The last one I had was a Cheesecake Factory, and I walked away so stuffed, but I didn't have anything left on that card. <laughs> My wife says, why don't you just use half of it and go a second time? I'm like, because I'll lose it. So let's get two pieces of cheesecake for dessert. We can do, and a coffee. Like, I want to use it all. I know I'm not alone. The Harvard Business Review did a study. Uh, 39.2% of shoppers will purchase a department store gift card for friends and family, followed by 33.4% of shoppers opting for restaurant gift cards. But according to the estimates reported in the Journal of State of Taxation, the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused or unredeemed gift cards. Not this house, because I use them. Um, (laughs) These cards are often misplaced, accidentally thrown out, or only partially redeemed. Between 2005 and 2011, get this, $41 billion in gift cards went unused. Genius by businesses to issue gift cards. Because they're, they're just like, it's like it's passive income is what they call it, you know? This is great. And I think the point of this is I think a lot of Christians have been given gifts by God and we're not using them. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us this. As each has received a special gift, if you're here and you're a Christian, we're told that you've been given at least one spiritual gift. And I would go on to say, because I'm not really big into semantics, if you're alive, if you're human, every single gift and talent that you have, it's because God gave it to you. And Peter goes on to say, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, work out your salvation. The idea, isn't, the, the idea isn't that you earn your salvation. The idea is you've been given salvation. Now live it out. Use your gifts. Use your talents. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus is saying. I might come quickly or I might come in a long time. But what God wants of his children is that they live for him, that they're ready. Are you saved? That's the first step. Have you placed your faith into Christ? It's a gift. Salvation is not about works. The offer is simple, that Christ came, he went to the cross, on the cross he died for you. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were placed upon him. He absorbed the wrath that was due us. In full, not in part, as the old hymn says. His death on the cross, it covered everything. And so then if you've received this salvation or if you're still not certain, it's belief. And for those of us who have believed, there's this idea of stewardship, that that my body is not my own. And I'm going to give an account for him. Not just your your money. It's not just your 10% tithe. It's every, it's 100% of your money, 100% of your gifts, 100% of your talents, everything that you have, when you stand before God, he's like, what did you do with what I gave you? And I want to hear the, the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to end with a funny story by Greg Laurie. I love Greg Laurie. He's, he's hilarious. Humor goes a long way in my book. And Greg Laurie wrote a book on worship. And in this story of, uh, in this book, he talks about sort of making the, the idea of stewardship and that we worship God with our all. He tells a story. I have no idea if it's true, but for the sake of telling the story, let's just imagine it's true because it's a great story. So he writes, I heard the story of a woman who had finished shopping and returned to her car. She found four men inside the car. She dropped her shopping bags, drew a handgun, and screamed, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of the car. Those men did not wait for a second invitation. They got out and ran like crazy. The one woman, somewhat shaken about the whole ordeal, she loaded her shopping bags and then got into the car. But no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get her keys into the ignition. 
Then it dawned on her, her car was parked four or five spaces away. (laughs) She then loaded her groceries in the other car, and she immediately drove herself to the police station to turn herself in. The desk sergeant to whom she told the story to nearly fell over in his chair laughing. He pointed to the other end of the counter where four men were reporting a carjacking by an old woman with thick glasses and curly white hair less than five feet tall and carrying a large handgun. No charges were filed. You see, she thought it was her car, but it really belonged to someone else. And so often we think that our lives are our own, but they actually belong to God. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for laughter. I thank you that we can study your word, that we can laugh, that we can enjoy ourselves. But, Lord, that doesn't take away from the gravity of what these verses are saying. Lord, we come before you reverently. You're you're the one who spoke creation into existence. We're told that before the foundation of the world, that you knew us that the hairs on our head are numbered. And so, Lord, I I fear that there are people in this room who don't know you or they're not certain if they're saved. Lord, I pray that you would help them, the unsaved, to understand the gospel that Christ paid it all so that they might have life. And it's simply by faith. And for those of us who are saved, but maybe we're uncertain because our walk with you is falling short. Lord, I pray that you would help us to evaluate and understand the magnitude of what Christ did for us on the cross. Lord, sin has such a stronghold. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. As we look at this parable of the talents, Lord, I know it's easy to be lied to, to be told by Satan that we're worthless, that we have no value. Lord, I pray that you would give us your eyes, that you would help us to see that each one of us is unique, created by your hand. Ephesians talks about that we're a a poem, like, of yours. And so, Lord, I ask that as we um, live our lives, I, I truly ask that you would help us, Lord, to discover the gifts that you've given us, that you would help us to step out and to serve you and to honor you, that we would be a light unto this world. I can't speak for everybody, but Lord, I know that when I stand before you, I desire to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come enjoy the joy with your master. And so, Father, we look to you and we ask for your help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.